Welcome to Single Minded Conversations. I'm your host, Jesse Single. I'm a uh, journalist and podcaster. My day jobs include co-hosting a podcast called Blocked and Reported and writing my newsletter at jessesingle.substack.com. Um, mostly I'm just going to take whatever questions people have about anything today, but I want to talk a little bit about a story in the Chronicle of Higher Education called The Essay That Prompted an Editorial Revolt. Um, I'm supposed to go on this uh, show on the Hill called Rising Tomorrow to talk about it with, I think, Ryan Grimm and uh, Rabe Suave, but I just wanted to lay a few thoughts out here. Uh, the story is basically about a um, philosopher named Kathleen Stock, a British philosopher who um, is controversial because she's she's gender critical. She basically – it's complicated, but she thinks like biological sex is real and important and and should in some cases trump gender identity. So the story um, by a guy named Tom Bartlett, who I know a little, who's a really good reporter – there was a sort of special issue of a journal called Law and, Con Law and Contemporary Problems, uh, which is hosted by Duke Law School, which is uh, by some measures a, a top 10 law school. And there was such an outrage uh, over a essay of hers called The Importance of Referring to Se Human Sex and Language that eight of the 31 editors, student editors, these are law students, resigned in protest, and the rest of them refused to edit that essay. Uh, I read it today. It, it basically just lays out why sex is an important thing to talk about. It she talks about how, why sex denialism is silly, or you know, denying the idea that the vast majority of people are straightforwardly male or female. She talks about how it's important to treat trans people with respect and to refer to them the way they want to be treated. But she simply says, in situations like prison or sports or a few others, there seem to be venues in which biological sex might trump gender identity. And the reason I think this is sort of an interesting and important episode is that there's this thing going on in some liberal spaces where you cannot express views held by not only majorities of the population, but I think like sometimes like super majorities. Um, there isn't precise polling on exactly what she's saying here, but anytime people are polled and asked, like, should there be some situations where biological sex uh, trumps gender identity, it's always the case that members of the public, at least in the U.S. and the U.K., respond that, yeah, uh, you know, their view, the median view seems to be trans people should be respected, but there's some situations like sports and prisons or, or maybe communal changing rooms where biological sex matters. This is the least controversial view possible, I think. And that divide, where it's the least controversial view imaginable, when it comes to the entire population of average at the level of averages of America or the UK, but it's so controversial, it can't even be printed as part of a journal offering differing perspectives on issues, you know, pertaining to sex and gender. Um, I just think it's really bad. I think it's corrosive to intellectual life. I, I also, from an activist perspective, I don't understand what the end game is here. Um, on some of these questions, uh, Ryan Grimm recently did a segment on this. The um, I think transgender gender legal center is the name of the group. They issued a report showing that on the sports issue, they're they're losing. No matter how they phrase the question in their focus groups and their polling, they're losing. Um, you know, given their their goal of having people having kids play on the or, or even pro athletes play on sports teams lining up with their gender identity rather than biological sex, they're they're just completely losing this argument. Um, they get destroyed and, and they wouldn't even release the full figures on some of the questions because they were so bad. So 
it seems to me if you're in the minority and you're trying to change people's minds and say, I'm right, you should change your mind about this. You can't really do that by trying to suppress people from even expressing the majority view. I'm just talking like pragmatically, tactically. Uh, I think there's all also, I mean, I like free speech. I think there's a moral imperative to let people express their views without undue or excessive uh, punishment. But yeah, I just, I think this stuff has been percolating in liberal circles for a while. Um, just, just saying stuff that you can say anywhere else, but you can't say there. I, I was reminded of this by, um, Matt Iglesias, in a reply to someone of Vox, said he had been fired from the Weeds, their policy podcast. I don't know the full story there. I don't know if he was like speaking loosely, but he had a colleague <laughs> post a letter publicly that she sent to his bosses because he signed the Harper's letter that I signed, because he signed a letter that was a pretty milquetoast pro-free speech uh, expression of sentiments held by the vast majority of people, I think. So I, I, I think liberal institutions will just wither and die if they become places where we can't even debate something where you can't even express the majority view in a debate. So um, that's sort of all I have on that. I hope other folks will jump into the queue with questions or comments because it's just Pongo 2 in there, but I will start with Pongo 2. I didn't mean just in a negative sense, Pongo 2. I'm happy to see you, but I, I want other people in there as well. Sure you are, Jesse, sure. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, challenging myself actually not to ramble on this one and to actually make it a question, but related to what you said just right there, um, do you think there's anything to the view that, um, like, I, I feel like I, I've tried to view this for a long time as like a neutral values discussion about like, you know, the value of free speech and we just have to argue for like, you know, free speech and the freedom of people to have ideas and the best idea will win. Um, do you think there's anything to the idea that that's just the wrong way to look at it? It's going to lose and we really have to address this as our idea like we have good ideas and the the ideas that they're that people are are promoting about um if if you if you want to say it's about like universal gender idea or whatever there's tons of ideas but to what extent do we actually have to stop viewing this as just you know arguing for free speech and actually view it as a thing where we have to argue forcefully that there, these ideas are incorrect and say why. And to some extent, if not to the same extent that they're doing it, like put pressure on people who are promoting these ideas and these ideas causing harm in something like the way that is being done against uh, in promoting those ideas. Um, I mean, I think, no, I think we have to have an open conversation about it because I, I my own views on this stuff are, fairly nuanced and and um i think some of these discussions are complicated but i i would i would never want someone to face you know real professional sanction or or an open letter to, so that one of the things that happened in the chronicle story is um a bunch of student groups at duke including the student chapters of like major national legal organizations uh there basically demanded that everyone involved in the uh, publication of that article denounce the ideas in it, which is just pretty Maoist, frankly. Obviously not Maoist, like no one's getting killed or tortured, but it, it is that idea of just it, it's getting pretty deranged. And I don't I don't know. I don't want the people in my neck of the woods to adopt any tactics, anything like that. I think it's perfectly fine to say that I disagree with self-ID because I think it could cause – this or that or the other bad outcome. But I think that's pretty different from trying to punish people for expressing a pro self ID view. Does that make sense? Uh, I, I guess it, yeah. Like I, I get, I get what you're saying there. Like the, the values that you have there, it just, it seems to me that like, um, 
right now that right now the the opposing faction has the strength of arguing like they're arguing from a position of relative like moral simplicity they're just saying anyone who disagrees with x position is a racist or something and i think that there's <laughs> you you can't really there's a difficulty in fighting that with just saying that like I think what it ends up coming out as is like conceding that, oh, they're Nazis or whatever. Sure, they might be racist, but we agree with their their right to speak anyway, right? Does that make sense? Well, I, think you have to have a bit I mean, I, I am a free speech purist, so I think even Nazis should be able to speak without um, being arrested or something. But in this case, it's more – I'm not granting that the like Kathleen Stock's views are that harmful. I, I, I think they're begging the question. I think the question of which which – approach is best and which maximizes sort of the good is an open question. And I think it's a really sleazy maneuver to just announce that this is so harmful. We can't even hear it. It's, I think, I think their, their method is so embarrassing and so such a derailing tactic and, and um, projects such weakness that we can just point that out. And we can say, if you can't even defend your view again, when you're in the minority, how are you ever going to convince people? So I think that's the way to push them, push them to actually explain what they, what problem they have with them. Kathleen Stock or whatever, if that makes sense. Sure. Cool. Thanks for the call. Andrew, what is up? Hey, Jesse. Um, so I have often thought uh, on this topic, I, I kind of feel like there's two groups on the trans side, one of which I feel sorry for and one of which I am just kind of annoyed by. So I think all the, like, adult, um, you know, 35-year-old or 40-year-old or, or however old adults who are actually trying to set policy um, and their allies are sort of putting all the like 15-year-old trans kids who happen to like running in a really bad spot by, by setting policy in such a way that really no one's going to agree with it. Yeah. So do you think there's an opportunity when we approach this topic to say like, okay, listen, you know, you're not doing anything bad by being trans and, and liking to swim? Um but at the same time, you know, if you cluster these things out statistically, you're just in a different performance category. And then we could start basing, you know, the meddling and everything. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I feel so like I feel bad for Leah Thomas. I mean, she she followed all the rules and the NCAA, my understanding is at first they were like too cowardly to make their own rules. They, they left it to sort of the U.S. Swimming Federation or some group like that. That group came out with rules that I think would have excluded Leah Thomas. I could have that wrong. People can listen to the Barry Weiss podcast episode about this where they get the details. But then the NCAA uh, did a 180 and said, no, no, we're not going to follow these rules. She can swim. So, yeah, I, I, I get what you're saying. I feel bad for her. I feel bad for the kids in Connecticut, the, the trans girls who – by some metrics, like dominated the competition there. It's just, it puts them in an impossible situation. Cause like you're saying, uh, I don't know. You never know. Like you, you can express a view that 20 years from now is embarrassing and that you've, you feel bad. You expressed it. I think it's pretty unlikely that 20 years from now people are going to be like, Oh, we were, yeah, we were wrong to uh, separate kids by biological sex in high school. That just doesn't seem like something that's going to happen. Although I guess it's hard to prognosticate. So yeah, I, I agree with you. I think these kids are put in a, a difficult situation and the approach groups like the ACLU take, which is like really maximalist, no hold bars, often jumping straight to the idea that if kids can't do sports, they'll like kill themselves. I, that also puts kids in a difficult situation because you don't, you don't want that 
to be the dominant message that if you don't get this one thing that is actually complicated and fraught with trade-offs for all involved, you'll kill yourself or your your identity is invalidated. Kids, teenagers often don't get stuff they want to do. I mean, I, I, I don't know. I, I'm so – I think a lot of the discourse does end up sort of using kids in a sense and, and is not to their – yeah, I mean, to, to me, that's always the part of the story that jumps out at me. It's it's how an adult will create like a fictionalized version of their own, you know, childhood projected onto a kid and then try to live that childhood out through their kid. You know, like I, I'm the, the, the experience of a trans kid in 2022 is just different than a trans kid growing up in 19. I like I didn't even yeah. think about that in 1990. Yeah. Um, or, or whenever these, you know, people were children. So I, it, it seems to me like people, you know, rushing to do what they think is the right thing, not really thinking through the consequences that they're going to put on some kid who just, again, wants to run. Yeah, I'm with you. I, I think there's a risk of that happening. Uh, thank you for the call, Andrew. That is, uh, yeah, I think that's the right, it's, it's empathetic, which is the right approach to this when it, talks to the, when it comes to the individual kids involved who aren't doing anything wrong. KW, what is up? Hey, w. You hear me now? I can. How's it going? All right, good. Uh, long-time listener, first-time caller. Uh, all right, so you, I think you tweeted about this recently. You've also wrote about this other one recently. You've heard about this uh, this new Pixar movie, the controversy that went down with that that review that got yeah. This off. this was um, a cinema blend review that got pulled down because the guy had like a paragraph or two basically saying that he didn't find it relatable because I guess in his view, a lot of the plot hinged on the specifics of like being an Asian pubescent girl in Toronto rather than um, more. Exactly. I just heard about that uh, a little bit from you also a little bit from Kat Rosenfield who, you know, it sounds a lot like one of those YA controversies that she always wrote about. And you know, what I'm thinking is with this with this situation, as well as the Emma Camp, New York Times column, you know, both of these just got me thinking. I've never heard of Cinema Blend, but, you know, the movie criticism world, which I'm very familiar with, it's where it's the world I spent time in where I first started this being this kind of woke craziness, get out of control Trust me, all the same pathologies are going on there as is going on in other areas of journalism, too. What I'm thinking is film criticism is an overwhelmingly liberal profession. New York Times, overwhelmingly liberal paper, in some cases, even woke paper. How is it that you have this one op-ed from a student who's, you know, saying, hey, uh, kind of getting scary to say heterodox views here. And then you have yep. this one review that, you know, may not like a well-loved movie. It's just one review, one op-ed and everybody loses their mind. Yeah. Like, can't they just ignore it? Like, let it go. There's going to be another op-ed or a review tomorrow that you'll like a lot better. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I agree with you. It's very weird. There's this sort of like sensitivity and fragility where uh, to me, those are two slightly different things because I can at least I, I thought the Pixar review wasn't great. I definitely didn't think it warranted pulling it um, offline or, or the, the sort of ritual denunciations. But if you're going to say like, 
I didn't really relate to this because it was because of the Asian theme. You should just like maybe be a little bit more f- careful how you say that and lay out more specifics. Um, so I think in that case, it was people latching on to something they viewed or could claim was racist. And, you know, once that label gets affixed to something, everyone turns the discourse meter to 11 and just goes to town. In the case of the Emma Camp thing, it reminded me a little bit of the response to the Harper's letter where um, I think people have an interest in not letting other people say out loud something that everyone knows is true. Well, this goes back to the Kathleen Stock thing too, because everyone knows that some compromise is going to be required here, like in sports and prisons. It's everyone knows that. But I think if you police the boundaries of liberal discourse by shrieking incomprehensibly at anyone who brings up this issue, I guess people think that that will prevent people from talking about it or the quote unquote wrong views from being aired. But that strategy seems to be working terribly because like people will just go to Substack or whatever and get the views there. They're not going to stop thinking that just because they get yelled at it. Uh, you and uh, Freddie DeBoer, he's been a huge yeah. uh, find for me. Great for my mental health. It's just finally there's an ecosystem where it's people who are, they're not going to, they're not going to pull a Dave Rubin. They're not going to pull a Tim pool yeah. and, and just float over to the right. Thank God. But who can say, whoa, 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 that something's wrong here. Something's wrong in our state. Yeah. And, you know, we'd be able to say so. I'm glad I can contribute to that. I will say that, like, it, it, um, I, I, you know, I, I don't, I write about a lot of other stuff too. So it's not just culture war stuff, but the vehemence of the response to the Harper's letter or the vehemence to the response of me writing about some of the youth, uh, gender stuff where I'm, I'm echoing the concerns of like established clini- clinicians, just mainstream views. The fact that people freak out when you express mainstream views, it's out- absolutely given me a bigger platform and directly made me money. Like not to be crass about it, but anyone who thinks that that strategy is going to work to shut people up, it, it absolutely empowers us in a way where if you just ignored the stuff we wrote, you disagreed with, or you just wrote sort of measured critiques of it, we get way less attention. So the strategy backfires pretty wonderfully for me, but uh, <laughs> thank you for the call. I hope you're a, a regular KW. I am. Thank you. you. Have, but I mean, I hope you'll be a uh, regular uh, caller, not just listener. Anyway, uh, Jane, Jane S. Janes, what's up? Hey, good afternoon, Jesse. Thanks for hosting this space. Um, uh, you said you sort of feel sorry for Leah Thomas and you feel sorry for the, students who were running as uh, transgender athletes in Connecticut, I just wonder how sorry you feel for the girls who have to run against them. Additionally, I don't know if you're aware of this, like some of the stuff that's dripping out of the UPenn um, issue is stuff like some of the girls went to the DA to at least get this guy out of their locker room. So I don't personally feel sorry for Leah Thomas, and I don't know that either one of us, you or me, can determine what motivates people, number one. And number two, the more you learn about trans and how it's not just one thing, the less I feel sorry for men who demand to go into women's locker rooms because they feel that they are women. It's very concerning to me. I'm a high school teacher in rural Oregon in a K-12 setting. And these people here, they don't have, they don't read you. They don't read the times. They don't read this. It's very elitist, the conversation that's having, being had around this. So when they start to find out what what you know people are demanding i mean it's going to it's going to have an enormous effect on the next few elections because they're already tired 
of mask mandates and everything. And now this is just this is just off people's trolley as far as most people, ordinary people are concerned. So yeah, but I, I feel sorry. Well, I mean that's fine. I can't I can't force anyone to feel sorry, but I. I but I'm wondering why you do. I guess and, because and she's because I think she's a kid, and and I feel sorry for Leah the same Thomas reason. Thomas is a kid. Yeah, she's Emma can't. Year old adult. I know Emma Camp's a 21 or 22-year-old adult, but she's also a kid, and I felt bad that people were piling on her, um, you know, because she wrote that Times column. I I feel... Girls swimming are kids, too, then, in that case. Yeah, I mean, everyone's involved. Sorry, no one's one's an adult until they're at least 25. I I definitely feel bad for the kids who lose under what I think are unfair circumstances, but my point is I, I just think there's nothing to be gained by focusing, in addition to the fact that I feel bad for her, uh, I don't think the focus should be on the individual players. I think the focus should be on the policies. And I do think it just, yeah, I don't know. I feel bad for a lot of people, but I, I feel bad for everyone involved here. Except I do, yeah. except I don't really feel bad for the administrators who, like the NCAA, who tried to just pawn this off on another body. And then when that body gave an answer they didn't like, they're like, uh, actually, we're going to make new rules. I, I think they've acted in a pretty cowardly way. I feel bad for the schools as well because we've got a boy going in the girls' bathroom, and there, I mean, there's nothing I can do. And if I take kids away on a trip, I'm faced with like, okay, do I shove a girl in with the boys? I'm personally not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. I, I have to be responsible to all the kids. I don't want to put a girl in with the boys, and I don't think a boy should be going in with the girls. It's it, this. This is really. I don't think it. People at your level of writing and the kind of people that you rub shoulders with. I don't think you realize what happens when it comes out to where I am. It's just, you know, you maybe really think about that. I don't know. I'm very fired up about it. I love you, though. I don't want to, you to feel like No, that. I appreciate the call. I mean, I, I think one of the problems here is there obviously has to be some conversation and compromise. And when these policies change pretty quickly, especially in schools, we've already seen enormous parent backlash. I, I just there's no fucking strategy here. You're just going to tell parents like, oh, OK, well, those kids you thought were one sex or another sex and. If you don't agree with that, uh, we're going to ruin your life. I, it, it's just a, a bizarre non-strategy, and it's not going to work. And I agree it's going to cause backlash, which I, I don't want that to happen either. But um, anyway, thank you for the call. One other thing before you, you, you sweep yep. me along. I just want to say yesterday was D-Trans Awareness Day, and so I just think people should look into yep. that. It's an awful large number of detransitioners. Thanks so much, Jesse. Thank you, Jim. Uh, Patrick, what's up? Hey, Jesse, uh, Bark Bark. Um, I wanted to – I was wondering a theory about why the uh, – the I guess for now we'll just call them trans rights activists or the law school students just don't really want to have the discussion. I'm wondering how much of it is being it tied to the complexity, not necessarily in terms of like – complex uh in terms of like facts but complex in terms of theory that the current uh movement is trying to like do and what i mean by that is like so recently i had um a trans and non-binary uh kind of education thing for my law office and just like i was a gender studies uh major when i was in college 10 uh plus years ago and just like kind of gender theory has like changed since then, especially like with queer theory and these new concepts about kind of like biological sex are just so like foreign, I think, to what most ordinary people would consider it, that you really do have to be versed in kind of queer and gender theory to even understand what they're really trying to say. I, I think you're almost giving them too much credit because I, I think – they're, they're try- so their their most important moral belief is that someone is what they say they are. 
if someone says they're they're a man, they're a man, including being biologically male. I mean that those are the policies they promote everywhere. That 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 should override everything. And then they'll sometimes like try to backwards engineer a, a, a philosophical underpinning for that. But there's like there's no there there because that, that the only belief that matters is people are who they say they are. So you're not going to come up with any. I think they like they'll grab from a little Judith Butler here, a little. Um, uh, there's various trans philosophers they grab from there to try to make it seem like a coherent system. But the, I, I just think they're sort of backwards engineering thing and that what they're doing is very different from like the sort of traditional liberal, this is a group that will suffer if we don't treat them well, if we don't treat them the way they, you know, in accordance with how they think they are in most circumstances. So, I mean, when you, I know, do you think it's more likely that like actually the people giving that training are just way more, smart and well-read and sophisticated than you or do you think there might just be some bullshit there well i think it's partially bullshit like uh what came up again was uh the deadliest year for trans people on record where looking into it like from wilford riley or what katie's done like they're actually pretty safe comparatively to uh, uh heterosexual people specifically like uh just men in general or black men in particular yeah but um it's just like kind of a lot of things where it's just like kind of weird. I, I do feel like the person who was a trainer trains on it usually. So not that they're smarter on it. It's just that they're so versed in it that it's kind of like a second language to them. Whereas us lawyers who are all very educated people are kind of just like hearing these new concepts where it's coming out of a not necessarily left field, but it's like, that's not kind of how I remember things were back from, yeah, I I also think that's part of like the sort of um the like self-perpetuating logic of a market where so we have this like I think growing training industrial complex where like HR folks you always have to keep the employees trained and it's sort of the same thing where if you read like Robin Danzo who's one of the most popular white fragility is one of the most popular concepts I think in race trainings these days it does involve learning new terms and rethinking what you thought you knew about the world and as long as there's new terms to learn and new concepts to learn and new conversations to have, there'll always be more stuff to pay for. And I, I, Not to be cynical, but I sort of think that's part of it because the actual legal stuff you have to learn when it comes to non-discrimination law, I don't – some of the trans stuff is evolving, but it's it – actually, you could knock that out in like an afternoon or two. It's not that complicated, and I think the, the, the sort of line dividing legal versus non-legal um, – behavior in an employment setting I, I don't think it's that complicated so i think there's like there's maybe what i'm saying is was like um an incentive to make it seem complicated and ab- well i guess that would make sense but i think the problem i have with the making it seem complicated is that if you take some of the theory basically on its face let's use the thing you just said about like what you are is what you say you are well it's widely believed that gender is a construct, but it's also a growing field that race is a construct. So does that mean that if I, a white person, say that I'm African-American, I'm African-American? And that gets into the Rachel Dolezal thing. And there was just like such a backlash against her that it's such a taboo thing that you couldn't really apply these kind of gender. But no, no, I mean, but this is exactly what I mean. Like there's no, there's no, there's no there there. I, I wrote about the transracialism, this philosophy paper where uh, a, professor, a um, philosopher named Rachel Tuvel, Tuvel, she didn't even like make a pro transracialism case. She basically said the arguments we use to respect trans identities, it's unclear why they wouldn't also apply to race identities. And no one has come close to making a knockdown argument for that, why that's not the case. But years later, it's still seen as verboten. You can't say that. But that's what I mean when I say this is yeah. sort of a stunted 
I'm not saying the trans rights movement seeking concrete great gains, most of which I agree with, is stunted. But this this pseudo intellectual movement, I think, is a little stunted. I think they still haven't answered basic questions because, again, all they're trying to do is build up like a a facade in front of this little nugget of people are who they say they are always, and you can't ever disagree with that. So that's my take. Uh, and that makes sense. I just maybe I wish that the trans rights movement was maybe not tied to the philosophy. Of no, and, and people like, always conflate the two. And that's why they get mad at you if you disagree with like specific aspects of the ideology. But I, I think there's such a huge difference between being like, you should not be able to fire someone for being trans or kick them out of their house for being trans versus people are literally whatever they say they are, which which is not something most people agree with that last one. Yeah, I agree with you on that. Thanks, well, Patrick. That's it for me, Jesse. Have a nice day. What is up, E? Hey, how you doing? Um, So just kind of hearing the other callers, I just want to throw this little thing out there. Then I'll ask you, I was going to ask you two questions, but I'll just leave it to one. Um, So I I worked this summer uh, at a summer camp. I was um, in charge of a a group of like younger, uh, like uh, people who were like, early in college, uh, who were counselors. And, uh, it's a camp that I'm familiar with. I've worked there for a while. Um, and there were certain events that happened this summer that, you know, like related to gender that I won't get into just cause it's not that interesting, but, um, it, it, it led to a lot of conversations that my camp was fully aware that they were going to have to have. And we're kind of waiting until the moment that they were forced have to have those conversations and answer questions that they didn't really feel like answering. Um, And there was a a real natural kind of, um, there was a very genuine organic conversation that came out of that, that was full of a lot of empathy and a lot of give and take and a lot of different perspectives. That's encouraging. Yeah. And I, and I just feel like whenever I open Twitter and whenever I listen to some of these conversations, it's difficult to listen. Uh, and, and, you know, I'm, I'm really not trying to call it anyone specific, but it's just, it's difficult. I, I think there are a lot of people who choose to be a part of this conversation and, and are very ideological and hard that they really lose the empathy that they think that they have. Um, and that goes for really people on, on all sides of this conversation. And I would just say that t- to have a conversation with a child who is genuinely uncomfortable with being in a space with other people, whether that's I, I'm uncomfortable because there's a kid who's coming into our space now who is not a kid that normally would have been let into our space, or I'm uncomfortable because this is a space that's traditionally for people that may not feel the way I do or look the way I do or whatever it is, that's, that's a difficult conversation to have. And I just, I don't know, I guess just, I think everybody should just recognize that like there are lots of people involved in these conversations and that they are complicated and it isn't just kind of these ideological hard. Yeah, no, I think that that's a really good point. And I think, um, I mean, it, it reminded me a little bit of the difference between when I talk to like experienced gender clinicians about how they navigate this stuff versus mainstream treatment, even basic things like the relationship between a kid who just came out as trans and um, their parents, where if you go online, you would think that, any kid who isn't immediately affirmed is just doomed and is going to kill themselves. If you talk to clinicians who actually work with families on this stuff, it is a negotiation. It is a conversation. It takes some time. There's back and forth. There's empathy. 
And I think that's a parallel to what you're describing there, where like yeah. if you work at a school or a summer camp, it, it's not going to just be like two deeply ideological sides butting heads until one side's demolished. There's going to be conversation and um, I would imagine some degree of compromise, right? Yeah, no, 100%. And yeah, I just think that, you know, when, yeah, people really like kind of project whatever character they think people are, but it's really like, like kids are, are really complicated and strong and like genuinely are, you know, whatever. Yeah, basically everything you said, I mean, I'm talking about kids that are fragile, kids that are, are whatever. I think that uh, people are super complicated. Um, but anyways, my question originally was just going to be, um, you you seem to, to take uh, a, a careful approach to not be kind of um, just like a culture war pundit and just kind of churn out opinions on the latest whatever. Uh, and I'm just wondering, like, A, how difficult is that you know, are there pressures for you um, to be kind of more in that mold and, and what that looks like and how you navigate that? And um, yeah, just kind of like what, how you go about shielding yourself from just falling into that kind of. Yeah. Uh, well, I appreciate the question. And I, I'm sorry to folks waiting, but I, I am going to have to wrap it up after this call. It's just, um, I've sort of got a crazy week ahead of me because I'm, I'm, I'm leaving the country Wednesday. Um, and I've got a lot of prep to do. The, there's a constant risk of going crazy if you cover culture war stuff for a few reasons. One is that the more you cover culture war stuff, the more people will send you emails with leads to other culture war stories. And the more your Twitter feed will be about culture war stuff and just all these algorithms working to funnel you into a particular space. And it is a space where you will be like exposed to this gets back to what you're talking about. Like you will be exposed to the dumbest, uh, trans and anti-trans activists to the most shrill and annoying and awful people because that's just how the algorithms work. And if you don't understand what the algorithm's doing to you or how you're being manipulated, you will just come to think that, oh, wow, all those people are completely crazy. My side's completely right. So I try to keep that in mind. I also think I'm a little bit shielded by the fact that I just like was a liberal pundit and a writer for a long time. And I have pretty, fairly strong, albeit sometimes vague feelings, but like what's wrong with America and they're generally pretty lefty. So I'm just, I'm never going to just go like full. I, I couldn't, the people who are like, wow, wokeness has gone too far. I'm going to vote for Trump. I just, I find that just completely deranged, frankly, and to miss the point. Um, but doesn't mean that I think anyone who makes that decision is like bad or I wouldn't talk to them, but I just, I, it just seems very clear to me that people's brains are melted and I don't want my brain to melt. I also think that this stuff gets very boring and we have the same conversations over and over and over for years. So as a writer, I will bore myself to death if I keep writing about it. But on the other side of the equation, I, I make way more money on my newsletter uh, when I write about that stuff. Like you can just see it from the subscription so clearly. So if I wanted to maximize my revenue, I would only write about um, culture war stuff all the time. But luckily, I don't have to do that. I can write about what I want. But it's definitely hard to find a, um, a good balance. And I appreciate that question. Uh, yeah, no, I imagine it's kind of hard. I, I think my number one protector is I also, my biggest fear is that my brain will melt. So as long as I'm following There's that certain fear. people you can look at on Twitter as like like the equivalent of like a 1980s anti-drug commercial where they're like, this is your brain and it's an egg frying. And you can just be like, I never want to be like that person. So yeah, absolutely. just don't do what they're doing. Anyway, thank you for the call. Thank you. All right, guys, I'm sorry I have to cut it a little bit short tonight. I am going to do another call, uh, call-in show 
tomorrow or Tuesday, and then Wednesday I'm off to Cuba for eight days. I'm hoping to find enough internet there to do a couple of these from there because that would be an interesting experience. Although, as a tourist who doesn't speak much Spanish, I won't have uh, deep insights or anything. But as always, very much appreciate you guys checking uh, these shows out. Please spread the word. Tell other people about the show. And uh, yeah, I'm always open to feedback, ideas for guests. Um, we had a nice little run of guests, and I think in April especially I'll be getting back on the guest train. But I like the mix of sometimes just hopping on and answering whatever questions people have and sometimes having a uh, actually intelligent person effectively co-host it with me. So um, thank you guys again, and I hope you had a good weekend. Farewell.